Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined with my co-host Lily and we are back in the studio recording today which is so much fun. It always feels very fancy to sit here with a microphone and headphones on um, to be able to chat with a guest and I'm going to get to our guest in a second but I want to sort of preface this episode a little bit and say that I'm going to you know, take a stab in the dark and say that there might be a couple of follow-on episodes from this one. I think it's going to be a really amazing episode and I think we're going to get a lot of questions and insight from you guys, our audience, to kind of a bit of a direction on how we can follow up with this episode um, so that it is applicable and um, really interesting to you guys. So we have the wonderful Alex here today and I'm going to get Alex to introduce herself in a second. But um, Lily, do you want to kind of kick us off and maybe, yeah, give us a bit of an intro to what this episode might be about? Okay, so we're actually going to speak to the lovely Alex, who, um, strangely enough, and not at all awkward, I've known her since she was probably three years old, and now she's a sex therapist. So, um, but it fits really well with our philosophy on on healthcare because um, it is a large part of our health. And when Sarah and I began this podcast late last year, it was all about trying to inform our general public on how to stay healthy, be healthy, um, think better, because everybody was just so down and dumps and depressed last year, weren't they? Mm. So we began a um, podcast and we work around the triad of health. So that's biomechanical, which is structural as well, and neurological, but also the next arm is um, biochemical, and then mental, spiritual, emotional. So we've had some amazing guests and no doubt today we will also um, hear from one. So we will call this episode something along the lines of let's unseal the sealed section, Alex. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Tell us about yourself, Alex. Hello, everyone. My name's Alex. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. I run a private practice as a sex therapist on Gadigal land in Eora, Sydney. And my certifications and trainings and interests I essentially started out doing a psych undergrad, did a master's in counselling and was like, love it, but I want more. And so Mm. I then went on to do a sexology postgrad as well. I also have um, training as an eating disorder therapist. So a lot of the research I did in my master's degree looked at female sexual dysfunction and women's relationships with their bodies. Uh, So in private practice, I guess something to kind of inform people is like what even is a sex therapist. Mm. So it's talking therapy with clients who are presenting with issues around sexual function. So things like libido, desire, orgasm, sexual pain, erectile dysfunction, um, premature ejaculation, things like that. But I'm also a couples therapist. So we do a lot of like relational therapy, um, looking at communication skills managing conflict, stuff like that Mm. is very interesting. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I think um, when Lily and I were sort of prepping for this episode and what we wanted it to look like, I got really excited because I think this is a topic that people hide away from Mm. um, or they don't talk about or they think, oh, we can't talk about sex. Like that's just inappropriate or awkward. And I think 
you know, so much of what we set out to do with this podcast was normalise these sorts of topics. Mm. And as Elise said, help people think differently um, and open up the channels to, yeah, really bring these sorts of topics and these sorts of things into just general conversation so that we can learn and explore and just better ourselves and better our being. So I love the work that you do. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to have you on and so we can share you with our audience. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And I agree with everything you said. I think so many people struggle to talk about sex and whether you're sexually active or not, sexuality is part of your expression. So it's relevant to everyone. Yeah. You know, it's so it doesn't have to be the kind of sex you're having. It's the way that you're relating. It's the way that you're expressing these facets of identity. Mm. And I think it's such a it's it, I feel very, very lucky to do what I do. Mm. Yeah. Today will not be about um, how to have sex. I think we all know how that happens and the mechanism of, um, you know, intercourse and so on. It's more about, um, I mean, your first point here, could you explain the word heteronormativity? Sure. <laughs> so I brought this idea of talking about heteronormativity into this podcast because I thought it's a really common conversation that comes up in private practice. Heteronormativity is the idea that we take elements of heterosexual relationships and our societal and cultural beliefs that this is normal. I'm using inverted commas, mm -hmm. normal. And I want to preface that when I use the term normal, I don't mean, I don't agree with the notion of normal because mm -hmm. within sexuality, variability is what is actually normal or common right? We're not supposed to feel the same, look the same, express ourselves the same. Yeah. Whereas heteronormativity is this idea that we should be consistent and the same in the way that we have relationship dynamics, which is between a man and a woman or cis men and women. So the reason that heteronormativity can be problematic is that it actively excludes presentations, identities outside of heterosexuality. So when we look at bisexuals, homosexuals, pansexuals, anyone who identifies differently, trans people, they aren't fitting the kind of mould that society has created around what a relationship or expression should look like. Hmm. Okay, so that's um, another big topic. Maybe how do we go on from that discussion. I mean, you've described what mm -hmm. in a textbooks 50 odd years ago, or maybe, you know, whatever, you know, was the normal then. Can you expand on that? Yeah, Just, for yeah. sure. So I guess something that I think is problematic about heteronormativity is that we're all conditioned to believe that this is a normal kind of expression and that we should fit this mold. However, this creates a lot of distress for people in in relationships that don't actually reflect this kind of traditional or classic one. And so in private practice, I'll get a lot of people kind of going, oh, you know, like I'm questioning or I'm upset about the, th the fact that my relationship doesn't look like what I have been told it should look like or that the sex I'm having maybe isn't the way it's supposed to happen. Mm. The other way that this kind of plays out is that there are heteronormative values that are placed upon relationships. And one of those things is the way that sex in a heterosexual couple looks like. 
it's quite it's often quite prescriptive and based off things like what we see in TV shows and movies and porn that kind of shows like quite a limited repertoire of sexual behaviors. So I don't know about you guys, but growing up, movies often showed me something like there's kissing, there's touching, there's penetration, then there's an orgasm and or ejaculation. And that was it. Mm. Did you guys have that experience too? Yeah. Well, I even think still today, right? In the movie, even if TV shows and movies that you watch, that's just how it plays out and how it happens. Mm. To be quite honest, I don't watch porn, just put it out there, because I have a really weird, you know, sort of response to porn. Fair enough. Yeah, because I just think it's, um, I'm not sure whether it's respectful or not. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. so maybe that's just me showing my age. Um, I just don't get off on it. Fair (laughs) enough. um, What about in like movies and TV shows, the sort of script around Mm. sex? What do you think you sort of... Look, you know, I guess I was brought up in um, an Asian culture and so maybe we were more um, conservative yeah. and also um, being 60, um, maybe during my um, era, it wasn't as sort of um, expressed as it might be today. Mm. I mean, I think it's healthier to be um, expressive. Yeah. But as you say, Alex, it's probably that hetero couple, never really, um, well, using your words, rigid and prescriptive act, really, mm. wasn't it? can just be limiting you know Mm. and I think I think something a question that I'll often ask clients is what is it that you feel needs to happen in a sexual interaction for it to qualify as real sex Mm. yeah so you also then now bring in things like the nervous system for me which is actually a really um, happy place to to talk about because Mm -hmm. I feel safer there (laughs) (laughs) and I mean strangely with so this is um the sealed section, so I can swear. So for me, it's actually more about the um, the brain fuck. You know, if someone has yeah. an amazing brain, then that's that's the start point for me. You know, there's a term for that, Lily. <laughs> what is it? Sapiosexual. Ooh, when uh, you're attracted to intellect. Hmm. So I guess we all find different things sexy, don't we? You know. So, Absolutely. So here I am talking about you know the brain being an amazing, um, sexy place, but. Some people might find um, body parts sexy, smell sexy. That's right. Money sexy, a big fat, you know, black car sexy. I don't know. Yeah. So mm. what you're sort of touching on there is how desire uh, can be stimulated depending on the context. And it's completely subjective for each person. But the way that we're kind of experiencing desire is very much based on the context around us. So for some people, desire will thrive if the context that they're in has like low lighting, nice smells, clean space, um, safe space. All of these contexts will help to sort of allow for desire to grow. And that's something that comes up a lot in sessions is people who are struggling with desire and going, I don't understand why my libido's dropped or why I'm just not in the mood for sex. And we actually start by looking at things like the nervous system and contexts around you because it's often the case that someone will go, oh, well, I guess my context is I have three screaming kids, I've got bills to pay, I work a full-time job, my partner travels for work so I'm constantly looking after the family or actually I've been so stressed that my exercise hasn't been as good as it used to, I'm not eating as well, I'm not sleeping as well. All of these contexts are 
important to consider for our sexual response and function. And I think a lot of people have quite an unrealistic expectation of their bodies to just function no matter what the context or circumstance is. Your context is actually kind of interesting because you're describing once again, movie um, sex, which is low lighting, you know, soft music, you know, champagne, blah, blah, blah. But um, then you go on and say about tired mums and dads, mm. which is probably partially our audience, which is yeah. Sarah, yeah. like quite a big part of our audience. So now we've had this sort of um, clash of wanting something, but living a different reality. Mm. Yeah. And that's, very much based on the mechanism of desire and the way it works in our bodies and our brains. So in the same way that we have, we have a series of stop and go messages that go from our brain to our body. So when we have that experience of thirst, there'll be like a, a go response, which is like, go get some water, you're thirsty. And then you'll drink the water and you'll be like, okay, stop. We're not thirsty anymore. Right. And then that stop and go mechanism is how your body is regulating its needs. It's the exact same with desire, except desire, unlike thirst or hunger or sleep, is not like a, a I guess, a foundational need, mm. right? We don't need sex to survive. However, it does work in the same way with the stop and go messaging. So I want you to imagine that your desire is like a car. You've got the accelerator pedal, the brake pedal, and a handbrake. And so when your sexual contexts are, are fitting to your needs, so say you do like the low lighting, you do like the clean space, you like the nice smells, you like to feel well rested, that will allow your body to hit that accelerator and be like, go, go, sexual desire, this is the context to feel mm. it, yeah? Then the brake pedal acts in the opposite way. So say you're around family or your children are knocking at the door or you're really hungry or you're really tired. These are contexts that will hit the, that brake pedal mm. and be like, this is not the context for sexual desire to occur. And so what we want to do in therapy is look at what allows you to hit the accelerator, what is hitting your brakes. The other thing we consider is what influences the handbrake. And the mm. handbrake is like a chronic low level no when it's up and it's all about chronic stress. Mm. So if you're dealing with something like chronic pain, consequences to sex, like you're fearing STIs or unwanted pregnancy, if there's a history of trauma that's impacting your ability to feel safe, mm. uh, these are things that will have your handbrake up. And if you've ever driven a car with the handbrake up, you can be putting your foot flat down on that accelerator. But if that handbrake is up, you'll you'll only roll, mm -hmm. you know. There's only so far that your car will be able to go and desire works the same way. So what we're doing in sex therapy when we're looking at working with desire is addressing what is placing pressure for that handbrake to be on and what is allowing you to then work with those pedals. Hmm. Okay, so we'll probably come to your third point quite quickly, which is um, querying sex, because what I'm going to ask you now is regarding the male-female um, desire pattern, you know, because just from observing, um, having sex for men is like 
a biological function. It mm-hmm. doesn't require the soft lighting, mm-hmm. you know, or the um, clean space and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, oh my God, you know, look, 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 look what I've got. I've got an erection. Mm-hmm. I've got to do something with it. You know, or does she, it though? Because this is the whole, this is the whole heteronormativity <laughs> well, discussion. Right? That's right. Actually, yes. Lily, yeah. did you know mm-hmm. there are three kinds of erections? Okay. Do yeah. They look, do they look different? <laughs> no, they don't. That's why it's important to check in with the tell? person who's having them. So the first kind of erection a person can have is reflexogenic. So it's just re- a reflexive response to stimulation, mm-hmm. right? The second is the psychogenic. So the sense of desire, attraction, fantasy that's coming into the experience. And the third is what's called a housekeeping erection. And this is where... <laughs> is it attached to a vacuum cleaner, please? <laughs> Almost. Um, but the third is, yeah, this housekeeping erection, which essentially four to six times a day, the cis male body will generate blood to that area just to check that the plumbing works Mm. and that's because your cardiovascular system obviously it's really important to make sure that that blood flow is circulating well so the first thing I do when men uh, uh, present with erectile dysfunction is I get them to go get their hearts checked with the GP because it could be related to cardiovascular health but isn't that fascinating three Mm. different kinds of erections that puts it all that's context for me that's fantastic yeah yeah, isn't great. it so fascinating? So do they, but, do they need talking? Do they need talking about? Need, no, no, we don't need to talk about. It, but I will come back to your original observation that men's sexual response seems to work slightly differently. Mm. And I am we're talking in binaries here, and I think it's important to note for any like queer listeners that or trans listeners that that's because a lot of the research is conducted on cis men and cis women. But essentially, you're right, men's sexual response works very differently. And my mentor, uh, Tanya Cohens, she came up with this really great analogy that I love, which is men's sexual response is a lot like a gas stove that you turn on. Mm -hmm. It burns hot and bright straight away. And women's sexual response is like the pot of water that you place on top of that flame. It's gonna take some time to reach a boil but it'll stay hot for a really long time after that. Whereas men's, Mm. as soon as you turn that off, it's off. Mm. And so you're right. There are fundamental differences Uh, within that. Obviously everybody varies, like their physical bodies just vary, but generally speaking, there are gender differences. And this also relates to desire styles. So the research shows that the majority of men will experience what's called spontaneous desire. So they can look at their partners or stimuli and be like, wow, that's hot. Now I'm turned on. There's that erection, right? I'm ready to go. And this is essentially, we call it spontaneous desire because it's a spontaneous reaction to stimuli. And it is the form of desire that I think our society favors and expects of people. However, the research shows that There's also another style called responsive and that the majority of women fit into this space. Responsive desire is where you can look at your partner and or a stimuli and be like, yep, you're cute. That's hot. Lovely. But like, I don't want to have sex. Right. Mm. And what we then need is extra context to be built in order to respond to it. So I want you to imagine it's kind of like a spontaneous man is like, I'm hungry. Let's eat food right now. And a responsive woman is like, 
Mm, yeah, like I could eat, but what are we eating? Like what cuisine are we having? What's on the menu? Describe it to me. Because that responsive desire is wanting to build the context first, mm. which will then allow for desire to really flourish. Hmm. It's all very um, time dependent too, because um, once again, talk about context and um, the families who we see, a lot of kids are sharing their, their parents' beds, you know, and that's right. You know, getting creative with having sex is, is probably not the first thing on their minds. Very challenging. Yeah. So yeah. you know, as you say, um, the the stove and the um, hot water and all that. Okay. So let's say you have um, five minutes. That's <laughs> it's going to sort of satisfy one person's desire, that's but right. not the other one. Mm. That's right. Mm. So. What I'll often see is really challenging for couples is that the spontaneous partner is like, oh, we've got a spare moment. Let's do it. (laughs) And the responsive person is like, whoa, like I am not in that headspace right now. And then we get this classic pursuer distancer dynamic where, you know, suddenly sex becomes another chore for the Mm. responsive person where they're like, fuck, you're always nagging me. Like, you know, I'm not in the mood. And so what we do in sex therapy when we're working with that dynamic is we take a step back and we go, okay, if it's going to take time for desire to build, we need to create those contexts outside of like that split second moment that you feel free, right? So for a lot of women in the heterosexual couples I work with, their context that they need for their husbands to help them with is literally like, can you just unstack the dishwasher? I was going to say, yeah, clean the house. Literally cleaning the house and helping with the household Mm. to them is it's amazing how that reduces the stress. So it takes the handbrake down for them and it allows them to then put their foot on the accelerator and go, great, now once we've, you know, fed and bathed and put the kids to sleep and we have time on the couch where we usually would maybe like zonk out and watch a TV show, there's also ways that they can start to practice being intimate together and use that time that then sort of allows for a sexual interaction to happen. Mm. So it's kind of using this knowledge of how desire works and going, okay, we just need to, I call it planting horny seeds (laughs) throughout the day or throughout the week. Yeah. So Esther Perel, famous sex therapist and author, she says that foreplay starts at the end of the last sexual interaction. Mm. And so this idea I try and coach clients with is, just because that sexual interaction has ended doesn't mean you have to wait a period of time for it to the next one to start. You can lay those horny seeds of like, here's a bunch of flowers, honey, I did the laundry. Let me take the kids so you can go to a gym class. Like there are all these ways that you can actually foster desire by essentially managing someone else's stress, especially if they're a responsive desire style person. Because the last thing I'll say on that is that the research shows stress is the number one desire killer. Yeah. Yeah, you've covered some beautiful topics here. So you covered the um, cardiovascular system because if someone can't get it up, you know, let's try and find out whether it's actually um, your physiology. Mm. Um, you discuss stress. And I think the big thing that you sort of touched on really was communication. Mm. Because um, to communicate these horny seeds, you actually have to have a vocabulary for it. That's right. And a lot of people don't even, you know, talk about anything that regards, well, regards to how they really feel, Mm. let alone, um, you know, having sex. Because to me that having sex with someone comes at the end of actually liking someone. I mean, that goes without saying, I mean, that takes out, of course, paying for sex as a whole other discussion, isn't it? Yeah. 
But yeah, I guess we had to like the person and then, as you say, reduce the stress, have have good context and then boom, something. It, might- that's the secret recipe, Lily. Exactly. So, yeah, I think you're right. You do have to feel connected a lot of the time, especially in long term relationships and marriages. I notice a lot of people who are struggling with their sex lives. It's not about sex. Mm. So everyone who comes in, it's like, we're not having enough sex. I'm like, okay, so this actually has nothing to do with sex. This has to do with your emotional connection and level of intimacy, which can all be remedied through improving communication in the relationship. Mm. So I'll often start people off with communication exercises and they're like, oh, I thought I was going to get laid. And I'm like, no, you're going to talk first and then we'll see what happens. And it's amazing how quickly it improves the sense of connection Mm. and also collaboration. You know, I think liking someone is a really good point, Lily, but what really helps people like each other is the sense that they're on the same team when it comes to the life that they're building together. You know, if you feel like you're on opposite teams, it's really hard to overcome problems Mm. and that contributes to the levels of stress And so what we want to do is help people feel like they're on the same team, that they're supporting each other, that they're supported. And that really allows people to relax into sexual pleasure because they have a teammate that Mm. can kind of help them with the rest of life's stresses. Yeah, you bring up some really others really good points you know so respect you know um, mm. and also carving away the resentment because a lot of people do end up having sex in a very perfunctory manner yeah. just to get it over and done with so the garbage gets taken out that day you know so one of my friends calls it well she actually she's quite funny um around christmas time she'll say uh, i guess i have to pop the hairy check checkbook this week <laughs> christmas is coming <laughs> Oh my God. I know. And she knows who she is. So she's not listening. But anyway, but this this actually brings us nicely to one of your other points here, because I think we'll come back to what you've just been talking about. But you were, you had written to us about um, queering sex. I think I'd be really interested in hearing that. Yeah. So I really like your point about sex becoming like an obligation or a chore. I think that's the case in a lot of relationships where connection is lacking and why it becomes so hard to do, because it's just another thing on the to-do list, you know, especially if you've got a spontaneous partner nagging for it to happen. Um, So something that I do with clients in couples therapy is to encourage them to reflect on their sexual repertoire. So what is this sort of script of sex that's happening? Is it that there's just kissing and touching and penetration and then someone orgasms? Um, And how do we start to be a bit more curious about our partner's pleasure. There's a really great uh, researcher named Stan Tatkin. He's a neuroscientist and couples therapist. He's got a great book called Your Brain on Love. And in that book, he talks about a lot about the nervous system and how it's really important for the longevity of a relationship to treat your partner like a complete stranger, which is such an A wonderful concept to me. But what he's essentially saying here is that our brains love to function within the procedural memory because it takes up less brain power to just make assumptions and be on autopilot with Mm. little things. And we'll often enter a state of procedural memory with our partners where we go, yeah, yeah, I know what you like to eat. I know what your favorite color is. I know that you're working and you're going to see a friend. You're going to play that sport, right? There's a sense of kind of just making a lot of assumptions about our partners after some time together. 
And so what he argues is that in order to facilitate a quality long-term relationship, we need to actively be curious about the differences and the way that they've grown and changed and evolved over time, not to make assumptions. And it's the same with pleasure. So that's where I'll kind of encourage people to go, well, let's look at if we, if we've got this prescriptive sex routine, I pull from queer theory, which is all about subverting the norm. And I'll say, let's look at queering sex. So if the prescriptive sex routine, I call it a a heterosexual sex menu, right? It's the menu that the entree is kissing, the main is penetration, the dessert is an orgasm for one or more people. And what we want to do instead is queer our sex lives by treating it like a Las Vegas breakfast buffet, which has everything if you've Mm. ever been. It has absolutely everything. You've got your egg station, continental brekkie, sushi bar, Christmas ham, anything you can imagine, (laughs) Las Vegas breakfast buffets have it. And so what we want to do instead is imagine that we're walking up to the buffet with our partner and a tray and we're going, all right, darling, what would we like to put on this tray for this experience? Mm. Because we're not going to want to eat the same thing every single time. Even if we had it last time, doesn't mean that you want it this time either, right? So we're not making those presumptions about, someone else's pleasure and their sexual needs. Mm. Instead, we're showing that curiosity with every new interaction to go, oh, like I know you like sushi, but do you feel like it today? No, I don't actually feel like it today. Okay, then we're not putting sushi on the tray. What about that Christmas ham? Yeah, love me some Christmas ham. Okay, me too. Let's put Christmas ham on the tray. Mm. And so we're doing that but with sexual behaviours essentially and we're really – playing with the idea that sex doesn't need to be defined by certain sexual behaviors for some people they can it firstly it takes the pressure off as Mm. well but secondly it plays around to the needs the unique needs of a relationship so for some people they can feel absolutely satisfied with things like mutual masturbation or massages and making out there could be penetration, there could be orgasms, there could be ejaculation, like all great, but we're not putting certain behaviours on a pedestal. We're just treating everything like it's all on the table and we're going to choose what we'd like to put on the tray together in every new interaction. Hmm. And it's like a buffet in the sense that it's not the last meal you ever eat, is it? Yes, exactly. Mm. And that there are always options and they're always available and you get to negotiate every time what you'd like to have. And also um, going on from that, there has to be a lot of trust involved, a lot of respect. The the old point about communication still comes into it because um, then there's the after the act because I guess some people might feel a bit vulnerable during that buffet. You know, it might go, oh, my God, I really gorged myself on dessert today, you know, and then having to um, discuss it afterwards or be teased like mad about having had um, too much sushi. Hmm. So, So in the end, it has to be that trust and communication around the whole buffet. And, and afterwards um, be able to do it all over again without any shame or embarrassment. Yeah, absolutely. That mutual respect is key to a healthy sexual relationship and just a relationship in general. We absolutely do not want to be shaming people for their sexual needs. At the same time, you are entitled to have different needs. You don't have to have the same set of needs. That's okay. I think what's important is finding what you're both willing to do. Hmm. So then I do have two questions. We may not have much time for them both, but the first one really is around body image because I'm not sure whether it is for everybody or more some people than others, but um, 
we, you and I discussed that briefly about um, people having body image problems mm-hmm. and therefore probably having, you know, healthy sex because they, they, um, some people sort of tie that in with um, being able to have sex even. Like, look at me, I'm so fat, I'm so ugly, you know, or my, my boobs have sagged or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, body image is definitely an issue that comes up a lot and the research shows that women will be most insecure about their breasts and their vulvas, men about their penis size. And I think this falls a lot into performance anxiety area. Um, And I could talk about this all day, but I'm going to try and keep it really short. But yes, body image concerns do come up. And I think the key thing to do if that is the case for you is to slow things down and let your partner know that those concerns are coming up. Don't feel the need to push through Um, you know, sexual behaviors or things that are making you uncomfortable. Instead, just like take breaks, stop, slow down, connect in a way that makes you feel safe and grounded um, and brings you back into the moment. I think that's a really important thing to do. Mm. Yeah, it just sounds like um, a healthy sex life is so dependent on so many other things in one's life together going going well, you know, Uh, which brings me to my second question, which is actually paying for sex. I mean, I suppose some people might say everybody in a relationship is paying for sex in some way or another, like taking the garbage out, having the dishwasher unpacked, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I'm actually talking about exchanging money for sex. Mm-hmm. What are your views on that? Yeah, love sex work. I think mm-hmm. it's great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely respect people who who work in that industry. I think it's incredibly taxing, you know, to be not only emotionally available but physically available Um, I have a lot of clients who are sex workers and I mean, obviously I'm a client facing practitioner, right? And so are you guys, you work with people and people are fundamentally annoying. So it's a really hard job to work with people. And then if your, your body comes into that as well, I just have so much admiration for sex workers. I'm just Mm. like, you're amazing, Mm. you know? So yeah, I think it's quite, I think it's a, um, yeah, a really hard job to be doing. Okay, I agree. And no judgment because I also have respect for any kind of work. Um, How do you feel within the context of a relationship though? So let's say um, in a sort of so-called monogamous relationship where sex isn't happening for one or the other, the partner, and that partner goes to pay for sex. I mean, is there any judgment around that? There's definitely no judgment from me. What I would be concerned about is um, I guess the – the sense of like boundaries and agreements that that couple have made. If both people are happy and willing for that to occur, then I don't see any issue. I would be concerned if it was happening within like a a secretive sort of way. But I think also it's, you know, it is really important to recognize that everybody's relationships has different needs. And if that's what people want to do, then that's their prerogative and it's not really anyone else's business to place judgment upon it. Agree. <laughs> what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I think well, I think I just agree with what you're saying. I think it's very dependent on certain relationships. Um, and I think that's probably where Alex comes in, in your line of work, is that you get to explore and uncover and unpack those needs and dynamics of relationships with that particular couple. Mm, yeah. yeah. So your last point here, which we've touched on a couple things already, mm-hmm. but your strategies to create shifts in our sexual relationships, what do you kind of want to – chat to our audience in regards to some strategies. 
There are three strategies that I recommend couples try in order to explore queering their sex lives and creating this sense of being curious about your partner's pleasure. The first we've touched on today, which is expanding the sexual repertoire, Mm. treating it like a buffet. But there are two resources you can look up on YouTube. The first is called The Wheel of Consent by Betty Martin. She's a sex educator from the States and it's a 45 minute long YouTube video. So kind of like a mini lecture. I give it to every single client that I see, no matter what they're presenting with, because it is an incredible free resource. It essentially looks at understanding the consent around touch dynamics. So Betty breaks down the difference between a give and receive dynamic versus a take and allow dynamic. And I'm not going to go into detail because I won't do it justice, but I would just encourage you to watch it on YouTube. The video is accompanied by an exercise called the three minute game. And this is essentially a a non-sexual partnered exercise where you can do it with anyone, your friends, your family, your partners, it doesn't matter. It's all about learning to build your communication skills around touch, saying yes, saying no, asking for what you want, that kind of thing. So it's a really fun exercise to practice because ultimately it's transferable to a sexual interaction. It allows you to then have the verbal skills to say, oh, I want this to stop or I want that to keep going or can we change it to this? Mm. It's freeing you up to communicate better. Cool. Yeah. So we've covered quite a lot, haven't we? Yeah, um, we've been all over the shop. Yes, but I, but I really feel Around that... Around the world uh, trip. <laughs> but you've given us a lot of answers, mm-hmm. um, but I just still feel it comes back to that whole, that whole trust, um, communication and respect um, mm. issues mm-hmm. that couples, um, whether it's a transactional thing like paying for it still, I mean, that still has to have those three elements for me. Mm. Um, or a long-term relationship or maybe a budding one, you know, um, anything anything casual because consent is the word that um, we didn't quite get to. That is all kinds of crazy, isn't it? What cons- what yes is and what, what no actually looks like or sounds like. Mm. Do you find that? Yeah, look, I think – I think a lot of people feel consent is a complicated conversation, but I really don't think it needs to be. Mm. You know, I think what allows for consent to be easy is to communicate regularly. Consent is essentially something that needs to be freely given. So we're not being coerced. We're not being manipulated into agreeing to something. It needs to be like reversible. We need to be able to say no at any point. Mm. Um, It also needs to be specific because if someone says, yeah, I'm, I'll have sex with you. What kind of sex is that? Because that could mean a range of different behaviours and you haven't actually consented to those specific behaviours. That's kind of how I see consent as a definition. And I think also consent can fall along a spectrum. So you might there might be some things that you're like, yes, absolutely, enthusiastically, yes. But there might be things that you're not 100% sure about or haven't tried before. So you, I think what I tell people is, you need to check in with your sense of willingness around something. So 
for example, if you travel to like a new country and you're trying their local cuisine, you're not going to go, yeah, I love this local curry because you've never had it before, but you might be willing to try it. And that's where we're looking at the spectrum of consent is you're going, okay, I'll try it. But now that I've bought a bowl of this curry, I'm going to have one mouthful and I can be, I should be able to say, I don't like this curry. I'm going to stop eating it. Mm -hmm. Right. Or you can go, oh, this is delicious. I want to keep going. I'm going to get a second bowl. Mm, a lot of food analogies here. Oh, sex I'm, and food, Lily. Seriously hungry. Okay. <laughs> oh well. It's all the same For pleasure food. center of the brain. Yeah. So yeah, we do know that. Um, that little brainstem of ours. Yeah. Okay. So consent is nuanced. Yes. That's what you're saying, and it's not as difficult as you know it makes it sound. Um, does it have have to be verbalized, or does it? Can it be? Um, a look. Yeah, say. I think you can have verbal and nonverbal consent. I think though it's important to, again, just like be checking in. So in the same way that someone says yes once or nods once, you can kind of check in and see if that is still standing, that mm. consent. Mm. And yeah. to push that plate away and in the middle of um, a meal, that's an interesting process, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Being able to say no and I guess retract the consent that you've given Mm. is what I find people struggle with the most, especially women. It's a very kind of passive, submissive uh, relationship with consent, especially around their bodies. And that if you go and watch that Wheel of Consent video, you'll see how that creates a shift in the dynamic of I was actually you know, I was maybe there was a giving and receiving dynamic, but now I've actually shifted into just allowing touch to happen that I'm not really wanting. And that can really change the dynamic. And I feel, yeah, people really struggle with saying no, but that's why that three minute game, practicing saying no to touch that you don't want in a non-sexual context will make it so much easier when you are in a sexual interaction. And it's probably also cultural, you know, because um, some cultures are more adept at flirting, for instance, mm. and, and others would see that as being totally frowned upon. So, yeah, I guess it has to be once again taken into context where we are in the world. A hundred percent. I was mm. just reading some research on the Me Too movement and how when it came out, the French, there are a lot of like French women feminist writers that disagreed with the Me Too movement because culturally they believed men should be able to harass women Mm -hmm. because flirtation is such a big part of French culture Mm -hmm. and they were saying that you're restricting men's sexual expression. And so it's just so interesting. Like you're right, culturally the differences for sure. Yeah, and that game in France, or we're just saying France because that's what's um, currently in discussion, yeah, but you couldn't do that, say, in, in Asia. You no, know? no, no, mm. absolutely not. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. We could do this another time, Alex, and have a whole discussion on what? Body image? Body consent. image. Yeah, there's a whole series. Yeah. Communication yeah. skills. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you have been on other podcasts. I mean, yeah. tell us which ones you've been on. Uh, so I've been on, what have I been on? So the recent podcasts I've been on include In Bed with Georgia Grace and Nova uh, talking about body image. I've also been on Kath Ebbs' Conversation with Kath talking about shame, Katie Williams' Better For It talking about sex in general, and I've also been on Ladies We Need to Talk with Yumi Steins talking about uh, sexual relationships as well. Mm. 
Fantastic. Yeah. So, Alex, finish us off with your three little things, your three take-homes that our listeners can kind of wrap up from this episode. I think my three take-homes from this episode would be to sit and reflect on what it is that you feel defines real sex. So really considering what you feel needs to happen for something to be qualify as real sex. I would also encourage you to another little thing is noticing those sexy contexts. What is it that kind of turns you on, mm. you know? And what are the horny seeds that you need laid out for your desire to flourish? Yeah, I love that. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. We It's been a pleasure. And as Lily sort of alluded to before, there's going to be many episodes, I think, down the track of on certain specific topics that we can dive a bit deeper into. But thank you for joining us. And I um, I just know our and listeners are going to love that. Alex? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. My oh. best question that I always forget. <laughs> well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you can find me um, on Instagram at underscore the pleasure center. And my website is the same, thepleasurecenter.org. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Amazing. And I'll pop that in the show notes so people can just click on it. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A quick disclaimer. These episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.